0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of control Alt delete My guest today is Aisha Hazarika. She is a columnist and broadcaster, best known for her insightful and witty opinions on current affairs and politics. Having started her career as a stand-up comedian in comedy basements all over the country, She then took what she thought was a natural diversion into politics as a special advisor for the Labour Party, helping politicians on their speeches, media and policy, as well as heading up initiatives on topics such as women and equality. In 2018, she took her comedy show Girl on Girl, the fight for feminism, on tour across the UK, including a week's run at the Soho Theatre, which followed a very successful two-week run at the Edinburgh Fringe, I saw the show at Soho Theatre and it was absolutely hilarious. The show looks at the current state of feminism with humour and honesty and it tackles topics such as Harvey Weinstein, Me Too and Kavanaugh as well as looking at the media's obsession with pitting women against each other. In 2019 Aisha took over as editor of The Londoner the Evening Standard's daily diary section. Plus she writes a popular weekly column for the Evening Standard which I always love reading. She was also awarded an MBE in the 2016 Queen's New Year's Honours list for her services to political service. Aisha is such a busy, interesting person. She was such a great guest and I really enjoyed this conversation. We first met at a dinner a while ago and I was lucky enough to be sat next to her and we just couldn't stop talking. So I thought she would make a really good podcast guest, which she definitely did. We spoke about refusing to not be put in one box, her fascinating career and how she makes it all work on a daily basis. So I hope you enjoy this episode and if you did, please go and leave a rating or a review on iTunes right now as it really, really helps boost the show. So I hope you enjoy it and here it is. So one of the reasons why I was just so like drawn to you when I first met you as well is because I am quite obsessed with people who are multi-hyphenates and I feel like on one hand you are, you know, you have had an incredible career in the political world but you're also a comedian and you're also very much in the kind of comedy world. And those two, I don't know, feel like sometimes they can't mix but they clearly can and
1: actually what a wonderful mix. I know it's, it's sort of worked out really well. And now I've got this kind of new strand as well where I'm doing journalism and I sort of edit the Londoner on the evening standard. So it's like my kind of career has just taken all these twists and turns. And what I loved about your book and the concept of what you do is the side hustle, because that's kind of how I've built my career up. It has just been like, oh, I'll give that a go and I'll try that on the side. And it has all miraculously come together although I have moments where I'm just like this is hanging by a thread like it could all go tits up at any minute now my mum will be like told you you should have been a doctor you know (laughs) or a lawyer something I'm like I know I know I know but I think what I like about what you do and obviously you've been drawn to me for the same thing is that when I was growing up I was always told you have to be one thing and Mm -hmm. you have to throw yourself into that and work really really hard and just like progress on this trajectory in a profession Mm -hmm. ideally and I think what's been quite satisfying is to sort of break that mold and show myself and hopefully other people if they're interested. you can map out your own course and you can do lots of completely weird and wonderful and random things and you can try things and some things go well and some things don't but there's so many interesting options out there for you
0: It's so true and under the umbrella of you as a person you can then bring them all together because I know that you're you're known for your witty you know funny take takes on politics so it's kind of well why not use all these skills and all these things that you're interested in? It makes you stand out even more. Has anyone ever tried to kind of mould you or try and keep you Down or try and, like, kind of, I don't know, take that sparkle off the humour side of things? Or have you
1: always been like, no, I'm going to do it my way? I mean, I think I've always just ended up doing stuff my way because I'm really bad at doing things any other way. I think, like most people, you do best when you are doing something that you love and that you're passionate about and that you're quite good at and that you're authentic at. If you're kind of Mm -hmm. forced into a box that doesn't quite fit, like, it shows, it shows quite sort of easily. But I do think one of the things that has always been a problem is that people have wanted to put me in one particular box and it's quite hard... To do that. So, when I first started doing comedy, I was a civil servant by day. I was working at the then Department of Trade and Industry and I was a sort of very serious government press officer by day with my sort of skirt and you know heels. And then I'd kind of change in the loos in the evening into my sort of scruffy jeans and the top, and I'd get out on the road and be doing stand up comedy like in Manchester in the evening and then like come back and be in the office for eight o'clock the next day. And I think at the beginning, people were like, I just don't get my head. I can't get my head around this. Like, wh- what is going on? How can you have two worlds? How can you be like briefing national journalists on behalf of the Secretary of State during day and then doing knob gags like in a room above a <laughs> pub somewhere in the north in, in the evening? And, and people just couldn't get my head around it. And then when I started to do more comedy stuff and, you know, I had a few meetings with TV people. I mean, TV people love to put you in a box
0: you know oh they love a label and they're kind of like that's what you do
1: that's who you are you just it makes you if you ever want to have an identity crisis go and have a meeting with the tv production company and they're like what are you are you a funny lady are you a clever lady are you a political lady are you a brown lady are you a spicy lady are you i'm just like oh my god there's so many labels being thrown at me i don't know what to do with myself and i feel like you're always reminded
0: of your age even if you're like really young in your twenties, they're like, Well, you know, you are,
1: you know, not in the young, young box anymore And you're like, Sorry? You're like, I'm twenty two, what? <laughs> they're like, Well you are getting on a bit, now." We've got someone who's like sixteen who's like really funny and she's really sharp as well. You're like, oh my God. Um and then I actually funny enough as well, when I when I met with my agents who are brilliant and they've been I've had a really great, great, great relationship with them over the last couple of years, when I first met them, one of them was like Hang on a minute. So you're saying to me that you just come out of the Labour Party, you're a political advisor, you've been stuck in Westminster for 20 years, and you think you're funny as well? I don't know if that's going to work as a combination, because I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know if my corporate clients want after-dinner speakers that just bang on about politics the whole time. And of course, now, that is... The thing, you know, yeah. with everything that's happening. So we had a conversation the other day and she was laughing, actually saying, Do you know what? She said, I remember that conversation. She was like, You were so right to kind of, you had this belief that at some point people were going to find politics really interesting and that you could make it accessible and sort of a bit funny and just, you know, a bit less heavy. And she was like, you were so right. And I was like, I know it's like the one time I've ever been right on anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, because at Edinburgh Fringe, it seems like that was all people were talking about um, is politics. And and you have this, you know, expert inside insider insight. Do you think that added, because I know when I've interviewed um, other really interesting people in politics, like Jess Phillips, for example, it helps to be not totally in it, from the very beginning to have some sort of objective opinion from actually having a life outside of it?
1: I mean, I suppose for me, I have sort of been around it for quite a long time because I started working in Westminster in 1997. So that's like a long, long time. I was like a admin girl at the Ministry of Agriculture. It was a very glamorous beginning (laughs) to to my life. But I think You know, I kind of did lots of different jobs in the civil service. I then obviously started doing my stand-up comedy. I worked in the music industry for a while. I worked for a big record company, EMI, uh, for two years, and then went in to be a sort of senior political advisor, what's known as a special advisor. I was in government and then we were in opposition. So I've probably had lots of different vantage points. And I think because there were so few people like me in politics, women of colour, Muslim... From a background that really wasn't very political, you know, immigrant Mm -hmm. parents, you know, they were were very much like, look, politics, not for people like us. We just have to keep our head down and work really, really hard. That's like a luxury that we can't afford. So I did always, I think, to your point, have a bit of that feeling that I was sort of the outsider, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'd come into this world, which was very privileged, very interesting, very well connected. Like you meet people in politics and it's like, oh, how did you get your job? And it's like, oh, well, my dad, mm. um, you know, his friend. And you know, there's a lot of kind of nepotism. I think I always have a bit of that outsider feeling still going on, you know, even though I have been around it for, for quite a while.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is an assumption that might not be true, but do you think sometimes as well when people see a woman being very kind of, confident in their abilities and like i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do this do you think it would happen like do you know any men who are also comedians do you think that that would be more palatable for some people or do you think Um, it's just in general the mix is kind of people can't get their head around it sometimes
1: i think people kind of get their head around it more now because partly just because politics has exploded and i think but you do have and obviously like I think in media circles now, because people sort of know what my thing is, it's it's less of a curiosity. Yes. But definitely, when I started, you know, people were like, "I'm sorry, you're you're, a, you're a former political advisor and you're a stand-up comedian." People just fall about laughing. Like that would be the funniest thing. That you know, I didn't even have to say a joke. And sometimes when I'm doing after dinner speeches or stuff, which is very much outside the bubble, things which are very very male dominated, I did an after dinner speech at a really big event, and it was basically all older men. And somebody, it was so funny, this guy came up to me and thought I had wandered into the wrong room and said, um, oh, love, I, I, this is like some kind of, I don't know, some heating conference or something. He was like, this is the dinner for the heating conference. I, I think there's another one. I think your dinner's <laughs> down the road, down, down a couple of, um, you know, rooms. I said, no, no, I'm I'm the after-dinner speaker. And he just looked at me and he went, you? The after-dinner speaker? And he went, but you're, I went, woman? And he went, yeah. And I went, and I'm to the colour of my skin I went brown and he went yup. and I went who are you expecting and he went to be honest I was really hoping for Ian Botham <laughs> I was just like I'm really sorry I'm not Ian Botham but what was funny because that audience was clearly not prepared for me not expecting somebody like me you know political funny yeah well, so lucky I lucky them work. that they could get that opportunity to get out of their tiny minds and I think at the beginning they were all like absolutely gassed and it was like arms folded make me laugh but I did oh, make God. them laugh and actually at the end I was like pretty much like you know they were like right come and have a drink with us now and you know you're really funny and you know your stuff and I and they wanted to ask me questions so I let them kind of throw questions at me, and I could answer all their questions and they were one of them came up to me and they were like yeah Respect, like you actually know, do know what you're talking about, and I was like, "Oh, thanks ever so much for like you know confirming like that I know what I'm talking about."
0: Yeah, so well, yeah, you're so kind. To, to <laughs> yeah, thank like, you. Sir. To, yes, I do
1: have a brain. Thank you. Thanks.
0: <laughs> but how do you go about um, preparing for your shows? Because obviously, you you are incredibly busy. You have a big role at the Evening Standard. Is is that very much still like a kind of carving out time on the side,
1: or I mean, it's it's writing an Edinburgh show is kind of it's a big job. Oh, it's absolutely huge. And I mean, I've taken a year off this year because of this new role at the Evening Standard, which is like a big job being an editor of, of a diary. To, I've got two pages to yeah. fill. Wow. what so, a, what? A, it's just such a well-known kind of iconic role. It is. It's it's great. I mean, it's a real, real, real privilege. And kind of, you know, it's I, I kind of love doing it. But... I'm conscious that, you know, it's a new gig for me and I want to throw myself into it. So I've just thought, right, this year I'm just going to cut myself some slack. Not, I didn't go to Edinburgh last year. I probably won't go this year. But, you know, but I've had other you know big jobs. I had a big job on a show on CNN, which I was doing three times a week um, when I did my other Edinburgh shows. It is hard work. It's a real labour of love doing a one-woman show. And I have to say, you know, my, my respect and admiration goes out to anybody who is a creator. But I think there is a there's a special type of trauma doing stand-up comedy as, as a woman. And writing an Irish show is a long time. And then you have to write it, you have to craft your material, you have to preview it. Your previews are always horrendous when you, you know, you thought you were like hilarious as you were like writing sort of half drunk at like three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And then when you test it in audience, you're like, oh, my God, this is awful. You know, you have to go to Edinburgh. There's a lot of mental pressure as well because it's incredibly competitive. You then go on the road, you tour it. You know, it's physically... Um, pretty exhausting touring, and you know there's lots of ups and downs. You know, mentally in terms of the audiences you get and how well you think you're doing. So it's hard work. It's an amazing thing to do, and when you have an Edinburgh show or, or a one hour of material that you're really happy with, and um, for me, my last I was really proud of. It was called Girl on Girl. Mm. And it was all about the the Me Too movement. Yes. I think you came to yes, yes. see it at the Soho Theatre, yes. and I was so chuffed with that because I'd worked so hard on it and it was the sh- it said exactly what i wanted to see i felt like i was being really really honest with myself and really authentic and you know i felt like i it was funny but I had a message with it yeah. as well and when you get the chance to do that and it works and everyone's laughing at the right places and gasping at the right places and applauding at the right places, you're like, this is amazing. This is worth yes. all the pain.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that show. For the listeners who um, might not have seen it, because it's obviously about feminism, Me Too, about the you know our culture of pitting women against each other. Did you feel like, you know, feminism is everywhere right now. Everyone's talking about it. And it's almost like comedy gives that. It, that space to kind of have some nuance, but also have some fun with it, and also say what you really think and what we're all thinking.
1: Oh, totally. Because I think, and what actually made me think about it was exactly the you know what you're saying. Because when you when you're asked to go on TV or radio and do a discussion about feminism or a disco, as I, I called it in my thing, <laughs> you you never really get the chance to have a proper um, layered, nuanced complicated discussion about feminism because like most things in life, Feminism is not straightforward, it's not easy, there's lots of issues to unpick. But suddenly you're in the studio, you've got three minutes, you're pitted against some other woman and they just expect you to go at it kind of hammer and tongs and you never have like a satisfying, I never hear a satisfying discussion Mm. about like the gender pay gap or opportunities for, for women at work or women on boards. It's always, it ends up being quite cartoon in terms of like, you know, enemy A and enemy B, it's like gladiators ready. So I thought I really want to talk about some of these issues in the show and humor in any capacity is a great way of communicating difficult issues because mm-hmm. if you can take the piss out of yourself or you can take the rip out of an issue and you can make people laugh it shows that you're not super grand you know you're not you've got self-awareness about the issue or who you are or where you're positioned in the debate and then that can give you the permission to open up some quite interesting and quite challenging provocative discussions like because one of the big things in my show is that I explored, you know, I am a, obviously a huge feminist. I've had a great sort of feminist apprenticeship with lots of great feminists like Harriet Harman. But my femi- the feminism I've been taught is quite a white, middle-class, educated, left-of-centre, Labour Party, progressive type of feminism, which is fantastic and I love mm-hmm. it and I abide by it. But it also made me conscious that, look, there are other types of women out there who are battling feminism in their own spheres, like even for my own culture as a Muslim woman you know, Mm -hmm. my mum's feminism is very different from my feminism but it doesn't negate her feminism Um, you know, black women are really, really underrepresented and women of colour really, I mean look at this Samira Ahmed case Mm -hmm. um, at the moment so it kind of allowed me to go into those and explore those conversations but because I'd given people plenty to laugh about it just made having those conversations easier and it made the messages I think land a bit better than if I'd just been like you know finger wagging and I'm going to lecture everybody about what I think is the right Mm. type of feminism. Totally because actually
0: I mean it would have been an amazing TED talk equally as brilliant but at the same time I don't know what it is about our brains that almost when we're laughing we're reflecting and going "Hmm, I just laughed at that and also maybe that has made me feel icky that I'm laughing at that or because at Edinburgh I'm I'm always made to feel kind of awkward in the audience yeah you know and and it's almost this kind of weird reflex where you're laughing and then you immediately think hmm am I I allowed to be laughing yes and also I need to go and do some more work on looking into that topic or whatever yeah do some more work on myself yes literally (laughs) come away from Edinburgh being like I need to work on myself we all do um Also, Edinburgh, I think, needs to become more diverse in terms of the audiences. Oh, totally, I I really feel like this is not, this is such a kind of melting pot of conversation and I am in a sea of old white people. I know. But
1: I do think that is very true of, you know, for example, when comedians go on the road as well and You know, when I record things which are fantastic, like the news quiz or or anything like that, or the audience for Have I Got News For You or something, the audiences do tend to be white and older. Now, partly that's because they can get off work and they don't get anything to do during the day and they can come and see things. But I think you're right. I mean, I also think that the performers need to be a bit more diverse as well. So Edinburgh is definitely diversifying. There's many more performers of colour. There's more women. But I think class is a big issue as well because mm. it is so expensive to go so to Edinburgh. So expensive. I only can go
0: during that kind of really busy middle week because I get a discount with um, like the travel company that I go with.
1: I honestly don't know how people afford hotel rooms. It's so, so, so expensive. And I do think it's a shame because the genesis of the festival was to be that place where you could come up and you could try something and you might get discovered and you can you know practice your craft and you can have a little like bohemian month where mm. you work really hard but it's it's not going to kill you for the rest of the year and it's so prohibitive uh, to people and I do notice that as the years have got, I mean I've been going to Edinburgh for God years and years and years I mean it is very very middle class mm-hmm. it's very much you know it's still got that kind of it's not quite footlights but it's sort of yeah it's got that kind of feel to it there's lots of kind of just you know, there's lots of Tarquins and sort of like I literally i And
0: am, uh, thinking of this improv group I went to see, and, and that in itself, he was... improv group and in he... itself, just leave that hanging there. <laughs> and he was like, he went to Oxford, and his and he was like, mummies in the audience, and he had like a centre farting that's flapping around, and I was like, oh no, like, then why we don't need more of this? Um, you probably ended up shaking it, but definitely
1: not. <laughs> but I mean, that's probably a, just another day in West. Oh god, I mean absolutely. I mean I was always really, really struck when I was in politics. Like, you know, I just couldn't believe I was just genuinely really really surprised because I was like, surely politics is meant to like represent the the, the people it serves. You get to Westminster and it's it is such a closed shop. I mean, I used to find that I'd be in these meetings with these all these young male advisors, and they all looked the same, and they all sounded the same, and they'd all gone to the same university, and they were all called Bob, Tom, and Simon. <laughs> So if you, ever got, if you ever get confused in Westminster, just go for Bob Thomas Simon. You'll probably be like okay. And then there were so few people of colour. I remember I got this job at Number. I was doing this work at Number Ten, and I was like, I mean, I'm not even that dark. Like I'm literally beige. Like I'm like a pale beige. I'm like a really rubbish brown person. I've even failed at being a proper brown person. And it's like I got this job, and I was I was meant to be going at the doing like writing stuff, and clearly they needed a, an ethnic person to do some sort of ethnic engagement. And Gordon Brown was like, you, you must do ethnicity. And so I got, then got roped into sort of being like the official BAME, like liaison person. I was thinking, I don't even know anything about, I don't even know anything about my own religion and my own background. So you were like, this, something is really not going right. And I remember going walking into parliament and there were so few Muslim women or brown women that looked like me. They got me confused with like Saeed Avasi. <laughs> They were, like, curts going, milady, And I was like, Oh, this is nice. Ooh, they're so polite. And then, like, no, no, they actually think I'm Saeed Abarsi, who's, like, chair of the Conservative Party.
0: Oh, my goodness, because that has happened recently, I've noticed, with... Uh, there's two comedians, and, and everyone just keeps getting them confused. I'm like, this is literally the most obvious, actual, tangible... Like proof yeah. that something is seriously, seriously wrong. But, you know, it's,
1: it's the whole diversity thing. It's become, again, like one of those things because we talk about it a lot. And it's a bit like, oh, it's also woke and like yawn. But it is so, so important. Like whether you walk into Parliament, if I'm really honest as well, pretty much every newsroom I walk into, whether it's a broadcast newsroom or a newspaper newsroom, you probably have the same experiences when you're going into sort of big companies and things like that. You know, we have got still such a long way to go on the most basic points on diversity. And while everybody sort of gets it from an intellectual point of view, they definitely get it from a moral point of view. Everybody's really keen to do what they can. The needle just doesn't seem to be moving, you know, Mm. fast enough. And you just think it's such a no brainer. Like if you're in politics right now, you're thinking, right, you've got this massive election coming up. Everything, stakes are so, so high. You're trying to pitch to your electorate, which is like your customers. Who is there? In your HQ that really understands about your different customers, well, there isn't. There's one type of human being, largely white, largely male, largely from a you know middle class sort of mm-hmm. background, Oxbridge educated, probably south of England, London base. It's like even if you take if you just remove this in politics, and you're like even this as a marketing. Strategy is not a good idea. Surely you should get some expertise into how to get some of your other customers. But the penny just doesn't seem to have dropped in politics or the media, actually. Yes. And
0: because whenever I hear, you know, incredible speakers talk about the need for diversity, sometimes they're like, do you know what? I would like to think that everyone was a good person and they just believe in equality. But the other argument is literally like, there's a financial gain. And look at the profit margins of some of the biggest box office hits at the moment where the cast is... Predominantly, people of color, black lead roles. It's yeah. like
1: this isn't just a like that. Like, people need this. We need this. Absolutely. And I remember when I worked at EMI for a short period of time, and um, I worked for the global chairman of the company. I remember us being in a board meeting, and I was sort of sitting at the back and um, making notes. And I looked around the table, and it was basically just all older white men, and nobody had any hair. It was, like everyone was just bald, and. <laughs> They were having this really like torturous discussion, going, Why is it that we just cannot crack the black urban market in North America? Why can't we get into the hip hop market? And I could see the light just bouncing off their like bald white heads. And I was thinking, This is the reason. <laughs> Look around the room. Look around the room. You're all very good on the golf course, but you're not very good at your hip hop, let's be honest.
0: Oh my God. I just, ugh, it's enough to make you, like, I am that person now where, like, <laughs> if an old man does speak I am just a bit like I can't I just don't even want to listen like I'm so over like you <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that so you're at the stage you can't even feign polite female interest anymore. we're just like no. I've become I've become rude yes <laughs> I love it that's the sign that is the sign that you're really beginning to live your best life I think as a feminist and you just get so grumpy with people and you're just like I just I'm not listening I'm just I'm not just, here for this yeah, anymore it's like shh just shh. <laughs> Let's play the game and nobody says anything, especially you. <laughs> you go first.
0: <laughs> so I want to talk um, about your columns quickly because you you're, you write such brilliant columns. And oh, thanks, Emma. That means the world to but me. But it's, it's a hard thing to do, isn't it, to kind of come up with an opinion every week and also something to say. How do you sit back and go, okay, what do I actually think about this? Versus kind of going on Twitter and being like, I I can't imagine you ever like following the crowd on on a like mass opinion, but how do you kind of reconnect with like your true
1: feelings on something? It can be quite a torturous process because I am... You know, I definitely monitor, of course, what's happening on Twitter, and as much as Twitter is a huge time thief, it's a, it's just part of my world as yeah. a commentator, as somebody who's you know really engaged with what's happening right now and what people think. So you do sometimes have that. You you are shaped by what you see on Twitter, but I am conscious thinking right. I don't want to just be like parroting, you know, what my echo chamber is telling me that I should be seeing on Twitter, and I do agonise. I do find that. A deadline, obviously, helps. Yeah. I do start trying to think about my column, like, about a day in advance, and then it's just... I'm just kind of... My head is getting more and more kind of confused. So I've done a new thing now where I just... I've kind of cut down on my faffing, because I used to... Oh, my God, my pro—my procrastination just used to take such a long time. So I kind of have a, a strong thought which just comes to me normally mm-hmm. the day before something's happened in the news. And then I... Jot down some stuff. I tend to do Sky papers on a Tuesday night. So that's quite useful for me. So I go through the newspapers Um, on Sky News. We do um sort of tomorrow's papers to tonight. Mm. So that gets my brain kind of going as well. Yeah. Then I come home and it's quite late. It's about sort of one in the morning. I kind of write some thoughts down. I used to stay up writing my column till four in the morning. But I have stopped doing that. I now sort of probably write till about half one. Then I'll go to sleep for a few hours and I'll actually wake up, I'll sleep on it. So I just get my thoughts going in my head and then I sort of get up at five and just go, there's no time for faffing. And it's actually my head is really clear mm-hmm. because I don't look at social media at that time in the morning. And I just go, right, this is actually what I think now. Yeah, yeah. And I think the best advice that I ever got, or the best advice I ever heard was from a fantastic writer called Matthew Dancona, who I really, really admire. He also writes for The Evening Standard, actually on the same day as me and he did this um speech at an award ceremony for comment writers and he said the best thing you can do is don't think about either the praise you will get or the abuse that you will get just write what you want mm-hmm. to write
0: that's really good advice and it was
1: that kind of stays with me because sometimes i will write stuff where i might get a bit frightened particularly if i'm writing something about politics because people get so angry mm-hmm. about women having political opinions and never having the right political opinions and I get attacked a lot from the right get attacked a lot from the left as well and I find that very very hurtful actually getting attacked from the left feels more painful to me and sometimes when I'm writing I'm thinking oh god is this but I think I I have to really clear my head and think no this is what I believe and this is what I believe right now is the argument that I want to make and I'm making it with integrity and good faith and just get the words out and yeah and you've just got to be brave about it
0: yeah because I guess it's like what you just said is really good advice because I guess your job literally is to get that thought down there and to inspire conversation whether it is negative or positive it's still it's still getting people's like juices going in their brains
1: yeah and I think that a good column good column does get you thinking you might not always agree with it. I mean, some of the the columns that I enjoy reading the most are the ones that kind of rile me up a little Mm. bit and 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 they do provoke me and they do challenge me and they do make me sort of think about things in a different way. Look, I might still decide that actually my original view was correct, but I think it's really important to sort of test your opinions and test your beliefs and question them. You know, people that never... Particularly now, politics is so heightened and we've become so tribal in our politics. Mm. And I think that's very dangerous. If you never take a moment to kind of step back and think, well, do I still think this? You know, yeah. has the argument changed a bit? The word nuance you used earlier, I think, is so important. Yeah. I think we've, we've lost it so much in our discourse, in our political discourse, in our social discourse, on our social media yeah. discourse. And that's sort of what I try. And also I try and put a bit of humour in as well yeah. because I think sometimes... If you're trying to make a point, then, you know, using a bit of humour. I like to be quite self-deprecating in my columns as well because I mm-hmm. think I may as well just get in there before other people do. So. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think it's sort of—I re- like to think that this sort of relaxes. Because that's the other thing. Sometimes when you read columns from people and it's also, ha, 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 I'm so clever. Like, I'm the cleverest chap in class and I know mm-hmm. everything. And I quite like to sort of say to my readers, well, like, I don't have all the wisdom and all the knowledge and I'm probably not right, like, even half the time. This is what's led me to think what I think and here is what I think.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to kind of open it up and level it out a bit and kind of just be like, look, come come and listen to what I've got to say at least. That is so true that we've lost the art of um, just like having a good discussion and a good argument and not being like, you are right and I am wrong. I was in an argument this weekend with a friend who doesn't like Meghan Markle and I really do like Meghan Markle and we like we like really went at it. Like not not in a kind of vicious way, just in a like, well, this is why I think she's great and this is why and then they were like, Well, this is why I've got a problem with it And it was like silly, really, you know, having a petty glass of wine and talking about Meghan Markle but we're still friends. Like we were. Li- five minutes later, we're laughing and talking like about something else,
1: off or something no. like that. Whereas I think that's if that happened on Twitter, it'd be oh, like I'm blocking you, I'm block- blocking, blocking, re- <laughs> and reported, to cancel your account, delete <laughs> yourself entirely. I know it just gets so overblown on Twitter. I mean, I've gotten. I mean, I tend to try to not sort of fight with people on Twitter because I find it very draining and it's really unpleasant. But I mean, some of the stuff I've been attacked for it's just so over the the top and you're like I know the, the person one of the people who'd sort of attacked me and I just thought I kind of know you in real life and mm. I think you're 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 better than this like you're way way better than this and then I sort of saw this person in real life and I had obviously just forgotten about this twitter spats and I sort of rushed up and I was like oh hi and they were like gave me like death stares and like whisked around and sort of threw their nose in the air and kind of like slunk off. And I was like, oh my God, what? wow, it's like yeah. a real thing. Everybody just chill out. Yeah,
0: I would be, I'd be exactly the same. I would think of it as like, oh, that was a funny little thing that happened on the internet.
1: But surely in real life as human beings, you'll just be like, all right. But I do think there is this, um I think this is really bad about where things are going at the moment. I think we're becoming so tribal we're getting to the stage where you know it's like oh, well, you can't even be friends with somebody that doesn't share the exact same mm. belief system as you and believe in everything that you believe in and like every single thing and if one person deviates on one metric then they are scum and they need to be excommunicated and they need to be punished and shamed and it's like oh I, I, it's just so so unhealthy because i i mean i remember when i was you know, and all the different various jobs and things. You know, I've mixed with people from all different backgrounds, walks of life, opinions, people who I've really, really agreed with, people I've really, really disagreed with. But I'm really glad to have had that richness of a variety of opinion and human being. and, And I do feel that we're curating, obviously, our social media, but we're kind of curating our our sort of lives particularly i think younger people in terms of right you're not in my gang anymore because you just don't you're not mm-hmm. you don't have that. and it's really dangerous that kind of sort of weeding out everybody who just doesn't agree with you having these kind of monolithic blocks of just everybody being in a lather of agreement that is not healthy no. that's that, that boring would, totally
0: that would be quite a good comedy sketch wouldn't it like you've got a best friend of 20 years and you're walking down the street and they say the tiniest
1: thing wrong and it's like you're gone you're out you are dead <laughs> to me now but I think the time will soon come where like it'll be like between families it'll be like oh my mum said this she is dead to me now she's not woke enough like <laughs> but I also I, I have a lot Uh, I have friends
0: who occasionally would like say something and I would kind of think, oh, oh, not sure about that. And then I would think they don't spend all day scrolling through Twitter. So actually, it's not really fair to kind of hold everyone up to this standard of like knowing the fact that a word has evolved overnight into something else or, you know. In the last 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, We we can't say that anymore. That means something different. It's like, well, some people genuinely like you just kind of need to point it out in a polite way and they're like, oh, cool, I didn't know that yeah
1: and look let's be honest that is going to happen to us one day you know like i'm petrified of that oh i mean (laughs) i feel like it's happening now i mean i feel like i'm literally just a few hours of having a full beard and just like screaming (laughs) kind of random obscenities and being like the most unwoke person and getting citizens arrest made on me left right and center and being like (laughs) deported you know, it's just like it, it's going to happen to us all, and you just think, "Oh my God!" Right, I think everyone just has to be a little bit, a little bit kinder um, yeah. to each other, <laughs> just like a tiny bit more accepting. That is absolutely hilarious
0: because I feel like as I'm getting like, because being a millennial like was really young at one point. Now, now ah. I, now I'm an older millennial, ah. looking down, not looking down, but just seeing the generations below and being like. I feel kind of like I could say something quite wrong and and then they'd be like oh don't worry she's just you know she doesn't quite get it like you would with someone's grandma yeah God it's hilarious.
1: I know that's so funny like so you feel like a middle-aged millennial now. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've But then, you know, I I oh God, what does that make me? It's like <laughs> get me a taxi to Dignitas after this is finished. Like it's over for me then. I believe
0: in us. I think we'll be fine. So, I know this is a cliche question but I really wanted to ask you mm-hmm. because, you know, got the um the chance to so you you do so much you sometimes are up till 2am in the morning writing what do you do to switch off from everything obviously look at twitter no
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's a really good question and it is one that i probably struggle with a bit i am not great at switching off i mean this weekend i actually was quite feeling quite ill quite fluey so i think my body was like you have to have a break you haven't had a full weekend off in ages And I just stayed in my sort of pyjamas all weekend and didn't leave the house and binged on Netflix and got delivery. And it was, I mean, it was the most restorative thing. It was just so good. And also because I, most of my work is communicating, it's talking or it's writing or it's broadcasting or it's doing public speaking. It's just nice not to talk. Mm. Yes. I
0: love that feeling of, not that you have to like really deserve it, but you know when you feel like I literally... Like, I just deserve every ounce of this kind of sofa delivery day and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna just like have the best time doing this. And
1: I I what what was great and was not a scintilla of guilt or shame. No. I was like exactly. I do not care. No. This is me living my best life yes. right now. I, this is it. I mean, I think one of the things which um and I'd be interested to hear from you because I, I mean I look at your brilliant portfolio career. As somebody who had, like, quite a regular job for a long time, you know, in the civil service and then as a special advisor and Labour Party, I mean, I've been sort of freelance now really for about the last kind of oh, sort of four years. And I think I still have that anxiety about taking any mm-hmm. time off. You know, you, you still sort of think, oh, if I, if I say no to something... Is that it? Will I never ever get asked to do that gig again? Or is it just really, you know, profligate of me to sort of say no to the to earning money when, you know, I haven't got my pension sorted out? And uh, Somebody does actually need to do a piece of work. Maybe this is a good one for you to do, Emma. I think there is something about I know everybody says Your self-care and time off, but I think if you're a really busy freelancer there is a panic about time off. Mm-hmm. There is like an absolute fear of time off and just not really knowing what to do with yourself if you're not working or hustling or doing your admin or doing something connected to your brand. I think it's really interesting. I think there's a genuine kind of psychological panic that you go into. Yeah, definitely. You're just like, what do I do? Who am I? Is yeah. there a God or has there been pointless existence?
0: Ah! Yeah, and it's sometimes it is. it is just totally illogical. You know, sometimes the good thing about being freelance is sometimes you can be, like, booked for a thing in, like, maybe February 2020. Like, you might be doing an event or something. You might have agreed to that. So you you know that there are, there might be things coming up. And there will be. But you can still be like, it's all over.
1: <laughs> it's totally over. I'm finished. I'm through. I'm a has-been.
0: <laughs> but, um, no, it's just that, that constant juggle, isn't it? But I, I always come back, even when I'm having the worst day ever, I can't help but think... I am the luckiest person in the world that I don't have to ask permission to have a day off. And actually it's all down to me. And that is a scary part. But I remember when I had a full-time job, you know when you have to like book off time for a holiday, I don't have to do that anymore and and everything that beats everything.
1: I, I I agree with that. I mean, my situation is slightly changed because I've got this gig at the evening standard mm-hmm. now, which I'm doing sort of, you know, it's quite sort of full on. But I do think it's it's really, really empowering to know that whether you choose to work or, or whether you choose to take a day off or whether you choose to sort of book your holiday, you are your own boss. And you don't have to sort of, you know, ask permission of anybody and it's down to you to manage your time. And I think that's so empowering. But also... I have to say, it does make you so much more of a productive person, and I think when we look at the world of work, like whenever I go in and do, I don't know, a bit for consultancy at an organisation, or I might go in to do like a, a day where I talk to people about politics or or strategy stuff for things. I do think that we are going to. I think a lot of people are kind of trapped. In this, I've got to be in the office at 9, I have mm. to stay there till 6 30, I have to go to these pointless meetings, my time is not my own. I have no agency over how I want to organise my work or deliver my work and or, or have any creativity over mm. my work. And as a result, the work is not that great. It sort of gets done because it, you know, has to get done and you have to meet the deadline. There's no great excitement about it. And I do think employers would get... Their staff would be so much more productive if they just cut them some slack and said, right, just deliver me this project by this point. I don't really care how you go about it.
0: I did have one boss who was really like that and it made me... It actually made me kind of realise that I work so well that way. She was like, you've got a month to do this. It was a huge presentation and it was like a lot of ongoing research. And she was like, you've got a month. I don't care how you do it. I don't even care if you come into the office. She was like, but if it's not amazing... yeah and it was just it was that real like a i've been trusted b i feel like a human being yeah who can like sort myself out and get dressed in the morning and also this like excitement of like i need to nail this i don't know and did you
1: did you have like a a meeting with her like midway through to sort of checking in yeah that's good yeah yeah, yeah. that's good but it was good but anyway thank you so much
0: for that that was super interesting and You've just got such a brilliant uh, outlook on kind of breaking the rules of it as well and doing things a bit differently and car- oh, carving out your own
1: path in life. Thank you, Emma. I mean, I just think if you'd said to me, age 15, you you know, I would end up doing all this stuff. I'd just be like, that is incredible because, you know, I was always told you can't do this and a girl like me couldn't get into politics or, you know, I wrote hundreds of letters when I was in my teens, into my early 20s, to pretty much every media organisation saying, can I just come and do free work experience? I'm like, none, mm. none. And you know, now I'm lucky enough to have the chance to do all these great things in my 40s. So I think my kind of abiding message to people is, look, don't be put off by barriers because barriers will just come up all the time. I still have barriers all the time. I'm sure you have barriers mm-hmm. to things you want to do. And rejection, still a lot. Rejection, absolutely. Tons of rejection and those boxes we were talking about, you know, being put into. But don't get disheartened. Find another way around. You will always find your way there. If you really want something and you're really, really tenacious, you'll find a way of getting something. It might not be the exact thing that you wanted to start off with, but you'll find something which is just as interesting and really satisfying. But you often just have to think laterally. Be really energetic. Keep hustling. Just hustle, hustle, hustle. And you will kind of get somewhere that you're, you are really pleased with mm. eventually. It's so true. Thank you for that. I also really needed to hear that again.
0: for Just a reminder for everyone out there, go for it. So for anyone listening who wants to find out more about you, obviously you're on Twitter. You have a book.
1: Where can people... They can have more book. Uh my book is on uh Prime Minister's questions. It's called Punch and Judy Politics and it's a history of um PMQs um and it's just a bit of a history about Parliament. And I have my column every Wednesday in the evening standard. Um I edit the Londoner Diary, um which is every day in the evening standard and I pop up a lot on Sky and on the BBC and, and various things like that
0: it's so fun whenever I uh, just turn on the TV and there you are being <laughs> incredibly articulate about the world's problems
1: I just love it <laughs> and sometimes slightly shouting at some slightly angry right wing man but it's fine it's all good thank you so much for coming it's on such a pleasure to be on with you Emma
0: thank you